Hi, I'm Clement Liu, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. The second half of the conversation that I had with Mark Peddleti started with me asking him about how folks might integrate music into efforts to bring about the behavioral and cultural change necessary to address problems related to sustainability and equity. That conversation morphed into a discussion about what Mark has identified as things that he's learned from the various social movements that he's participated in. How might we better engage with music as uh, a form of con- like conversation, communication that might drive behavioral change better than like the, the standard ways that we try to have co- conversations with folks? What a, what a great question. And I, you know, I guess two levels come to mind, at least for me in answering it. One is, sure. I think of it, I think of one time, for example, when I mentioned communication and I, cause I, I tend not to as much when I'm in the domain of the AMS, American Musicological Society or Society for Ethnomusicology, because I realize that that audience doesn't think about communication as a sort of academic study. They think about it as a thing, a practice. So for example, one time when I said, when I said something about communication and somebody that I really intellectually trust, so I won't name them here or whatever said, well, of course, thinking about music as communication is problematic. And my first thought was Mm -hmm. one, yes, everything is problematic. We study problems. (laughs) That's what you do. But two, the other thing is I realized that because people have, of course, you know, outside of a discipline or profession or whatever, that sometimes this is the case, thinking about communication in such a simplistic way as sort of like, a, you know, the transmission model. Somebody says something, somebody understands it or not, and what else is there to understand? Mm-hmm. Not thinking about it as constitutive and, and, and communication as a field of study in its own right and a thing in the world that is very complex. Mm. That that reductive sense can take place where people hear, oh, you want to study this communication. So you are going to reduce this incredibly complex, beautiful thing called music that we study. We're trying to get other people to take seriously, not Mm. just as something they enjoy, but understand the the theory of it, et cetera. And now you're turning it into communication. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the fault there, I don't think lies in communication or anything else. The fault lies in, well, you have a discipline there where understandably people do not study communication to understand that it's right. not an insult to say we want to study it as communication. So, I mean, that's that's the on the academic level, that's the problem, again, of genre, discipline, etc., mm-hmm. that we tend to be very sort of guarding of our own and think of it as you know, probably inflated is greater than it is, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're, we love it. So we want to think that the whole world can be explained. And therefore you get every discipline says, well, we're by definition interdisciplinary. Well, no, right. especially <laughs> if you, you know, you have to say that, you know, every discipline is, is fairly narrow, sure. but with broad implications, you know, now the more important part of your question is what's this have to do with anybody outside of a campus, outside of a university, outside of a scholarly or whatever discourse? Yeah. And I think there we reduce get something very important. How do we make it so that this matters in terms of behavior? And I guess that's sort of why when I wrote a book called A Song to Save the Salish Sea, 2016, mm-hmm. never suggesting a literative title to an editor. They will take that one. But anyway, um, <laughs> when I when I did that book, I really wanted to try not to write it in such a way that it would be Oh, you know, you got the the 
conference group to stand up and clap, but mm-hmm. you really missed the sort of like what it is that various groups, um, like coalitions like Idle No More in, in Canada, mainly Canada, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous led are doing <clears throat> and what they're communicating and why they work. That's the other thing. I wanted to see these positive examples of not just sort of be the sort of critical mode, thinking the critical mode of, I'm going to see what I can deconstruct, rip apart because they don't understand it. And I do, I'm a, I'm a scholar instead say, mm-hmm. what can we learn from this? Mm-hmm. What is this clever thing that the wilds in Surrey, Canada are doing that other people should think about as far as environmental pedagogy and communication mm-hmm. through music that we can learn from. And they are scholars because they are doing musical scholarship via via demonstrating they can do it well, you know, and then maybe bringing the scholarship to it that, that, that as a a practitioner Mm -hmm. that has to think all the time about how do you get all this done logistically, professionally, artistically, et cetera, might not think about. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that becomes important, but as far as affecting behavior through music, what have we learned? I guess that was my best answer, that book, because it really looked at what is it about these examples that are making them successful. Mm -hmm. And if I wrote that now in 2022, which is a whole six years later, there'd be many more examples. Um, I'm not going to say better examples because you can't get better examples of the cases I have in there, right. but there'd be many more of them teaching us even more. And I guess that's that's what a scholar can bring to it. But also it's like, I think each of these has insights of what they do. Yeah. Going back to Dana Lyons, I'll just mention one example. Mapping your tour literally onto a movement because most environmental movements are place-based Mm-hmm. And they're kind of they're kind of routes, you know. In mm-hmm. each case, from the very beginning, four decades ago, when he studied the sort of a proposal to bring commercial nuclear materials all the way out here to Hanford from the East Coast, mm-hmm. well, that was I ninety is the main route mm-hmm. that became the route of his tour, mm-hmm. and um, it was consciousness raising. It was music that connected a place and those mm-hmm. things, but not overly chained to it in such a way that people could not make of it what they want so that they will engage in the music. Nobody wants, as um, uh, Buffy St. Marie once said, don't turn it into, don't give him an enema, you know, right, right. make sure, you know, make sure it might be good for him to, to hear this or that. And you might think that, but if nobody cares to listen to it as music, what's the point? You know? Right, right. So you said a bunch of things that like make me think, um, and I think your explicit mention of uh, I don't know more and why can't I remember Buffy's last name? Buffy Saint Marie. Saint Marie. Yeah, no, I, I, obviously too, too. And you're Canadian, so yeah, shame I know. on you. I know. Well, I grew up listening to Buffy Saint Marie. I just of for course. some reason just had one of those weird like brain farts where it was just like, why can't I remember her last name as I'm saying it? It um, happens to me every other minute. <laughs> um, but so uh, and then they're like uh, thinking about the the pedagogy and scholarship of movements and of, you know, particularly of like movements built by oppressed and marginalized folks. Um, right. It seems to me that a lot of what you're, you said in the, the last few minutes really resonates with me and like kind of what I'm hoping to do in my scholarship, which isn't about music, which is to think about like, right. How do the, the ways of thinking and teaching uh, that are, are employed by marginalized and oppressed folks how are 
those how what can we learn from those uh for those of us who are in professional uh academics right those of us who are like in the academy what can we learn and how might we be better at, at like inquiring about the world and communicating about the world from you know learning from those examples I'm not quite sure what my question is. No, it's a great question. No, you, I, I think you've asked one of the most important questions, and this goes way beyond music, way beyond scholarship, all this stuff. And that is, um, I guess, one of the things that comes forth for me as far as feeling disconnected when I move from campus, if you will, to off-campus engagements. And I think of, for mm-hmm. example, the School of the Americas. Um, doing what they call crossing the line mm-hmm. um, where there's a whole bunch of really great musicians involved um, of all sorts of all levels. And that was to stop the school of Americas from teaching torture mm-hmm. in Latin America, around the world, et cetera. And it's based in, you know, right there in Alabama near the Georgia mm-hmm. borderline. And, Going to that at the same time during the middle of the semester, I was teaching and just feeling this incredible disconnect that there was this awesome diversity, Mm -hmm. complexity, nuance in order for all the different groups to come together in that coalition. Mm -hmm. And it was so different than when you're on campus, especially now where I think it's odd that scholars that should study nuance, complexity, in categories, et cetera, mm-hmm. have become so fixed. This idea that we can understand the world and there are these people, there are those people, these categories, these are operating categories, and this is how it works, et cetera. Right. And I think you do get a little bit of eye rolling in actual movements that are made up of actual people that are doing actual things with complex identities, intersecting identities and intersectionality doesn't really capture that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the academics um, attempt to, to get there maybe starting with their categories. So Mm. I guess that's one thing I've learned from movements is, is, and I learned this early on and, and I'm going to, I'm definitely going to forget this guy's name, but he really had an impact on me. He was the lawyer for Leonard Peltier. Well, a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dread, dreadlock. Oh, you, do you maybe know the name or I'm trying to think of, I, I, I have the face in my head and I'm trying to think of the name. A guy, you know, dreadlocks, uh, African-American guy. And he yeah. was on nightline, et cetera. Just didn't look the part, but, but just acted the part yeah, yeah. did everything well he was so effective maybe a bad example when i you know leonard peltier is you know didn't get out of prison etc <laughs> but the but this was an actual event that really struck me early on where gathered there were were members of mecha mm-hmm. um members of the black students alliance members of the uh, progressive students alliance which was about half and half, about half of it were, were um, uh, mainly Asian American women from the League of Revolutionary Struggle mm-hmm. and various others. Myself was part of that. All these groups are sitting around, be brought together by this guy that wants to do something on campus around that. And he went around and he said, you have a problem with that group because of X. You have a problem with this group has a problem with that group because of Y. This problem, whatever. And he goes, I hope you can forget that long enough to recognize Who's in this room? Mm -hmm. Who came here to actually do this work? Mm -hmm. Let's get to work. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of where I go to. That's one of the things I learned from that world is that if you get overly hung up on our academic categories, mm. that important progressive work doesn't get done. And boy, has the right succeeded in that vacuum mm. where they're more about what is the policy we want to get here that we think it's going to actually help people, et cetera. Mm. And of course, I, I don't believe that the right wing is really thinking what's going to help people. I think they're more driven by what is going to produce profit for a certain people. And it's very white nationalist, et cetera. And I'll stand by that. But I think the left could learn a little bit more about, okay, in addition to our therapeutic categories and internal dialogues, et cetera, at some point in a democracy, you have to form a majority and actually put forth a policy and find ways to advocate it that can actually get it through. And I guess that's one of those things that I see a disconnect between campus and off-campus sort of discourses, even though the campus discourse appropriates that similar language of movements. Right. And then, of course, the most important things I recognize as a white man that can kind of sound like, well, I'm actually acting as if, you know, there aren't power and groups aren't power, you know, whatever. Right, right. But I don't think power completely can be reduced to some of our categories and that sometimes those more interpersonal made writ large views of how power works do let institutions off the hook ideologies right. off the hook policy um you know uh a lot of things that political economy that we do need to keep in mind i guess that's that would be my my very very long answer to your very very good question listening to mark talk about political movements and advocacy remind me about two of his projects ecosong.net and together alone so i asked him to talk about them here's what he said two of your projects that you're working on right now uh ecosong.net and together alone uh i really love them and i want more people to know about them so i want you to just like take a moment and then like let anyone who's listening uh know a little bit about what they are and what they're about sure yeah oh thank you thank you for inviting that um uh first one i would say is ecosong.net really kind of generated out of stuff that we were doing ad hoc. And by we, I mean the band hypoxic punks that I'm in and Mm -hmm. mainly that, but then other sort of friends of whatever, and of trying to, you know, use music and and play music in a way that mattered environmentally. And on this whole spectrum between sort of organizers that don't do, do much with music at all, versus the other end of the spectrum, maybe those that would eschew the idea that music can be anything but sort of a uh, abstracted moment of listening to sound. There's all these sort of different gradations of, you know, musical organizers like a Pete Seeger or whatever that, mm-hmm. that for whom the music is important, but maybe even like, I'm not sure he would play music if it didn't have an organizing tool mm-hmm. versus those that are musicians that really care about the environment. And they're mainly going to play music, but they care enough about the environment that as musicians, of course, they're going to do it musically. Mm-hmm. I would say that we were somewhere right in that middle. You know, okay. doing it for environmental reasons, but also loving the music or whatever. And and then there, that was our happy ground. And yeah. so we created this thing called ecosong.net, making music videos um, that hopefully are not like just devolve into PSAs, but because they're grant driven and institutionally driven, as in, you know, we, we go with a community partner so we can be good partners and doing something right. that matters in the community. 
um, which has certain imposes certain limitations and structures and logistics, et cetera. But trying to make music within that domain um, about things like chloride pollution, sort of, you know, road salts and in, in one called Watershed. Yeah. And each of these videos, like Pep and Legacy Alliance, dealing with siltation and climate change that they're dealing with there, on down the line, each one of these has a community partner and is us bringing music to that, create a music video with including co-production that it's it's the people that are appearing in these videos are generally not us you know mm. they we, we might be there as a backing band or whatever but they're generally others that are performing this music in the community mm. and so that's where really the kind of heart of ecosong.net having said that we've done a couple documentaries for example one around uh the orca the southwest uh, southern resident killer whales and um, the harassment of them by um, the whale watching industry and how that sort of prefigured a lot of what was doing out here. And that actually came out of a music video project, believe it or not, but eventually <laughs> did a documentary that that I'm very pleased to say that, that the people that have made some important decisions at least viewed the film. I know that, you know, yeah, and that's good. Did, can you say that the film made the change? Heck no. I wouldn't even pretend that. <laughs> I make this point over and over again anything whether it's a science scientist whether it's artist art or, or the artistic work etc mm -hmm. we can't ever really say what matters as far as these transformations you kind of do it all in the hope that putting it in the whole gestalt that it will matter mm -hmm. but anyway um so that's what ecosong.net is you'll see these music videos and 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 we that's the stuff that's the that's the labor of love it's just it's fun stuff to do when i retire hopefully fairly soon. Um, <laughs> I will keep doing that. I will keep making music um, in a way that, that hopefully resonates at least for some at an environmental film festival mm -hmm. or hopefully reaches a little bit beyond that to community partners. So that's the ecosong.net. The other one you mentioned together alone was a, a really hopeful project with incredible musicians taking part, mm -hmm. but it's really been hard to get it going beyond that. Partly because I think when I started it, it was like their Instagram really wasn't kind of doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, still isn't, but it's basically the idea that people going out in their local community, a place they love, playing their music kind of organically and live mm -hmm. and sharing that moment, sharing that place and using it as hopefully a local organizing tool to sort of, you know, show that how place is musical, et cetera. Um, it's been hard because it's been mainly driven by subsidized by small grants that I've been able to take in a sort of Vine Deloria kind of way. Vine, Vine mm. Deloria is the, you know, really talked about how if you really want to do something that engages with an oppressed people, especially indigenous peoples mm -hmm. as a scholar, bring them grant money, you know, mm -hmm. don't just do your thing as like, well, I'm speaking in al Alliance or whatever, actually mm -hmm. be able to, you know, more fundamentally do something that people can use and engage with them. And so that was part of the onus of that. I don't like to have musicians that I'm working with, oh, gee, I want you to do your art, the thing that you do professionally and do it for free here for me as an academic. Right. Um, and so anyway, each of these musicians, um, for example, Foreshadow of the uh, Federated Kootenai and, and Salish, who did the one Take Back that's about the taking back of the National Bison Range and mm -hmm. created this great hip-hop song um, called Take Back. Um, yeah. You know, that's just great stuff, you know, uh, and and what they've produced in this context is really awesome. 
Having said that, you know, I love this, the, the sort of, you can think of a double meaning for the sustain, just sustainability yeah. for a podcast. You know, it's hard to sustain this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that one is hard to sustain in that form, as simple and organic as it looks. The production logistics that make it happen, yeah. and then that would hopefully make it so that more people would do those, and they'd add it, and it would seem, you know, a little bit. Hopefully, it feels fairly transparent, as in it's what they're doing and putting it out there. But putting it out there is really hard, yeah. and I don't know that it's going to go much further. And one of the test cases was. A really incredible. I won't name her because, unfortunately, she she kind of blew up, and at the same time, got so famous that it's like, <laughs> I'm probably not going to do this little video that we signed up to do. Uh-huh. And it's like, I got to a point. It's like, I don't think this is something that's as sustainable as the EcoSong.net model, where it's like, okay, right. more free association. What do we all want to do that are just here together doing this? Whoever's here, let's get it to happen. Yeah, that together alone of asking musicians to do this. And raising the money so that they get remuneration for doing it, et cetera. It just got to the point where I don't know that that one's going to work, to be honest with you. I think the Ecosound.net model works, but Together Alone as a sub-project might not. I hope that at some point it happens, or maybe it's happening, but I don't know that it is. You know, At least I uh, am not um, privy to where this is sort of people that are doing this kind of musicking yeah. in a way that that tried to do. But uh, either way, it's a good experiment. And the things that you have were terrific. I, pr- I appreciate that. I, I, I hope, I hope they are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the sort of scholarly versus other world. If I had to sort of like get rid of anything I've done and keep something else, I'd probably get rid of the books, the, uh, peer reviewed journal articles, the conferences, et cetera. Um, and leave the classroom because mm-hmm. then, I mean, I, 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 in other words, I, one of the things I would leave in the, the whole nexus if I had to get rid of stuff is, is the right. pedagogy is central. It's the most important, but also ecosong.net is feeling like a form of public pedagogy, not as in yeah. here we're instructing the public, but again, free association, people getting together and doing this really cool stuff. And getting to be a part of that is just awesome. Yeah. And my phone just did what I hear in so many podcasts. Uh, I should have it in another room. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, I mean, right. I think the, the beauty about podcasts is uh, I think when they're done best, they're just conversations. And during conversations, yeah. sometimes people phones ring. And I think that's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you're you're probably getting um, at the point where you're wanting to sort of end this after an hour and eight minutes, but that is something as a fellow podcaster, I'd love to talk to you about at some point. Um, what sure. kind of podcasts you like, how to do them, etc. Because we're up to 123 for the Public Lands podcast. Yeah, yeah. and everything I just said for Together Alone goes double for the public lands podcast i've kept it along largely as a pedagogical thing to make sure my students have this infrastructure to do whatever right but man it is hard at this point in time our conversation began to wind down so i turned the reins over to mark and invited him to ask me a question to conclude our chat he asked me about podcasting and my favorite podcasts the podcasts i like the most tend to be just people talking about 
like having natural conversation about things that they find interesting, right? Like whatever that is. Uh, yeah. The, the podcast I've, I've liked most recently is just a bunch of friends who are watching all of the Star Trek Next Generation uh, episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about that. That was advertised on a, on one called Douglas Movies, which I've listened to since it started, like when podcasts first began. Yeah, Doug yeah, yeah. Benson has been at this. And they mentioned that and that one and loving that that podcast. Yeah. And so, right. So, yeah. So that's the, the newbie Star Trek podcast. I mean, so th- that is sort of the, the sort of the, the podcast I like the most because I think, um, I, I think I learned the most from, uh, sort of natural conversation, right? Like I, I sometimes find the academic discourse to be stilted and to be artificially constrained and right. Like this, kind of notion of rigor that pops up often is like it limits what we can think about right uh, yeah. and, I, and i and i think is it, it is important for us to like to be clear and to like avoid bullshit and to uh right to to, to to like you know not to watch out for our own tendencies to want to believe certain things rather than you know like actually believe the things that like m- might uh reconcile the, the best with the world uh and yes, we have to be careful about that. But like, I think at the same time, we sometimes need spaces where, you know, we can just sort of free associate, let our minds sort of expand. Otherwise, we end up going down weird rabbit holes when it comes to like scholarship. Right. So like, uh, I think this, I think I'm particularly kind of wary about this, right, having a background in philosophy and having a belief that much of academic philosophy uh, spins around a handful of uh, funny word problems that really don't have much to do with the original questions that people were were asking that led to those funny word problems yeah, uh, yeah. and and so uh i i i like so like right when i think about the just sustainability podcast uh the way i approach it is uh mostly finding friends and people that you know i find interesting by like running into their work and then just having a conversation with them where i ask the questions that sort of organically pop into my head and have sort of just like that random shoot the shit speculative conversation uh about you know whatever it is that they that they work on or think about that i find interesting um and i think it works because uh i think it's i mean maybe you you'd be better able to like comment than i am i think it's fun for folks i find it very fun yes and i'm i yes. hope that the people that i'm speaking with also find it fun and so uh I I find when people like find out what it is that I want them to do on the podcast and listen to a few episodes, uh, people are, tend to be inclined to to uh, to agree to be on the, the podcast when I ask them. Yeah, no, I know, and 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 you do it really well, and that's the other key. I think you know, like the podcasts I enjoy listening to are very much what you're describing that they're on a topic that might be more or less that's something I'm interested in, mm-hmm. but you know. Frankly, if I was relying on them for information or to whatever for, you know, I, that wouldn't be the place you go, but, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just entertaining. It's fun. It's interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, like you pointed out, uh, and, and maybe this is where I, I guess most of my podcasts, when I think about it are, are so removed from my academic world mm-hmm. that I kind of do a separation of, you know, of brains there. Um, the other thing is, is I, I, in my own podcast, 
have done another thing that can be dangerous that I mentioned a little bit when I was talking about the music videos or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to try in that Venn diagram bringing too many things together. And one of them for my podcast, the Public Lands podcast, mm-hmm. has been it has a pedagogical, as a literal classroom focus and use and infrastructure that students can do some of these, et cetera. Right. And that really kind of circumscribes what you're going to do. You know, right. you find, I find myself, okay, I want to get a legitimate guest from that represents Death Valley National Park. And actually that there's an example of somebody that was, these have been great guests, you know, very conversational, right, right, right. but their role as professionals representing the institution, they're not going to go off and riffing and kind of make jokes of things or whatever, or, you know, think about the, they've got a message they've got to get across. Right. I find myself very stilted as an interviewer where I've kind of done, and that's where it gets logistically difficult where I've done this preparation. So I have a question that really brings out something I've studied about what they're doing or whatever, you know, and probably a little bit of insecurity there was like, I want to show, I know something, you know, Um, I, I often think of, of uh, John Oliver one time when on uh, um, The Daily Show very early on. He's interviewing a scientist and he says, how stupid do you think I am? And he goes, no, really. <laughs> I mean that. Like, how stupid do you think I am? You know, <laughs> where he kind of as an interviewer, you want to. And it's that willingness to give that up. Like, OK, I'm going to play like an Ira Flato from Science Friday where you know, I've listened to that long enough to know he's pretending he doesn't know half that stuff, you know? Right. And it's a important pretense because then he is the person that's the, the sort of foil for the audience that says, you know, the, the interlocutor for the audience that says, you know, I'm going to talk to this person like a real human being and, and hear what they have to say. And there you are, you're going to be interested in hearing what this expert has to say. Yeah. Um, you do that really well. You do this the conversation thing really well. I have a tendency to sort of, on the Public Lands podcast, keep it a very staid model of getting a certain type of guest, doing whatever. And that yeah. becomes, at a certain point, really unsustainable because like it, it gets hard to book guests and do that all research and everything as opposed to, let's put something out there. There's all these interesting things I have that people are not talking about. For example, right. as far as public lands, there's all these stories right now that are so important. Can I get a guest that does that in the time I have, et cetera? Probably not. It'd be better just to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the way it's because part of this is right. I do it for my own self-education. Like yeah. part of the reason I started this podcast was an excuse for me to like, just hit up random people that like, I well to hit first hit up friends, but then further like in addition to hit up random people who like I'm familiar with their work, but like to ask those kind of awkward questions about the work, which would be strange to do outside of a like an excuse like a podcast, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it was I have I've you know during my career ran into a lot of really interesting people who do cool work, and if I just sort of like. Right, like something email, like, "Hey, can we take ninety minutes to talk about this thing that like you do that I find really cool?" Uh, that's weird, and so like, how how can I do <laughs> that and not just be that weird person that like cold emails people and like, "Hey, can we talk for ninety minutes about this random topic?" <laughs> and, and, and I think that makes it easier, right? It's sustainable for me because it's my it's it's you know to some extent fun. Um, I'm normally not thinking about any specific topic other than something I'm interested in. And so like that's smart when, when I'm identifying guests, it's not right. Like it's not work. It's just like, right. Like, 
I tend to find guests doing other things and like, and hear about them or read them or like, you know, watch a video of them or like see them at a, give a talk or something where I just like, like, huh, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, I w- would like to take up an hour and a half of their time to talk about this, but right. Uh, I don't, uh, yeah. with, outside of the podcast, it would be weird for me to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really smart too. I think I got myself in a hole, and I don't want to make it sound like oh, gee, this is just work because especially yeah. when I'm in the conversation with somebody that represents a national park, yeah. a local friends of group or whatever, it's always really edifying, and I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. But it's just at a certain point, it's like the hole is okay. Here's the format. Here's what we do. Here's sort yeah. of in that domain. And whereas what you're talking about doing, I think that is sustainable and it's sustainable in the same way that, that talk, getting back to music for a second, yeah. you talk to musicians and often, especially the successful ones mm-hmm. will say, I don't really make music for an audience. I do what I like to do. And just mm-hmm. turns out some other people like it. I used to think, Oh, that's kind of bullshit. They, they are on tune with that many people because they have a certain sense of what the algorithm is. Mm-hmm. But I believe it more and more. I think if somebody does, if you can do make music eight hours, mm-hmm. 12 hours a day, if you really love it and really do what you love for yourself, mm-hmm. you can't do that if you're thinking all the time, what am I supposed to do? How should I do it? Because that does turn mm-hmm. it into work. And I think like what you're describing as a model, and I hope that, you know, students do listen to this because mm-hmm. I think there's a sort of transferable knowledge there of doing what you love to do. And it will matter as opposed to starting with, this is what matters. And now right. here's how I should do it. And that's not sustainable. I, I think what you're doing with this podcast is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's no reason. I, I, I think, I think sometimes, uh, right? Uh, we've talked about this a few times uh, about like your approach. I, I think, I think you, you might like, right? Like, if you don't mind a little bit of like kind of advice that's unsolicited, I, I think you overthink the the public lands podcast because I, I think there are a lot of sort <laughs> of the conversations that you could be having. Uh, that are similar to the conversations that, like, right, I have on just sustainability. Right? Yeah, like, I, I, I think just talk about public lands and public lands policies with people instead of, yeah, having to set up formal interviews yeah. with you know representative people and stuff. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, right, I think uh, your approach to finding guests could be more like the way I find guests, which is just like, right, like on my day to day work, I run into like you know the work of people that I that like that catch my eye, right? That like, Oh, this is really cool. I'm curious what they think about like this sort of random other thing. And it might not actually be anything, but talking to them, something's going to come out of it. Yeah. And well, that's, that's, I think there's a personality thing there too. I think of, for example, my father, mm-hmm. my brother-in-law, who's a really close friend, my father-in-law who's passed away, who, you know, and so was my father, but all of them were basically salespeople and they mm-hmm. were natural they really, every person was a friend that they, or sorry, every stranger was a friend they hadn't met yet. That kind of thing, you know, they just like, it wasn't the case that, oh, because we're in sales, we have to act like that. They legitimately had that. And I really love people, but I'm a little bit more, and I think this is getting to environment where there's a sort of MO here, people that might Mm -hmm. rather be alone or I've, 
been, you know, with the same life partner, my, my wife for 36 years now with my wife, Karen kayaking mm-hmm. or whatever. And it doesn't come naturally to go up to strangers. And this is weird to say for an ethnographer, <laughs> but it's very <laughs> true. I think often we study the thing that's like, how do people do that? You know, um, yeah, yeah. it doesn't come naturally to go up to a stranger and say, Hey, I'm doing this study and I want to learn from you, whatever. Um, yeah. I really like having the sort of, um, it goes back to, you know, I like having a script. I like having a whatever because of that insecurity of having that fluid conversation with somebody you don't know. And that I think is a case of finding, you know, as far as media, the format that works for you too, because um, like when I think about Ecosong, that, that free association, it's a little bit of a weird way of doing things in some ways. It's neither the sort of very loose, like, let's just see what happens because then it's probably not going to take the form it does. Mm-hmm. But it's also not what I would say is even more common where somebody claims that there being a collaboration, you hear that word so much, especially in, in academe. Right. Often that means is how do I get other people to do my work? And I'm not, I'm not being, I'm not meaning, I don't mean it as caustic as it sounds. I mean, cause I don't think people, you know, the really good organizers yeah, yeah. always do that, but it's more like, how can I get people to get interested in my thing? And yeah, yeah. I think you go song.net has really worked because people do their thing yes. in a domain where, yes, if you're a caterer that loves to bring pizza, do that. Bring it to Diamond Friends of Diamond Lake. We're going to yeah. make this video. You're as much part of this as anybody. Yeah. Well, and, and, it is not, though. It is not, though. We're going to have a music video about making pizza. You know, yeah. and, and I, and so I guess that's the thing when I get to the, the, getting back to my, my own podcast, which has been, it's worked well, et cetera, yeah, yeah. is I, I, I don't know that I'd have the confidence and the temperament that you do where you just so nicely and fluidly go kind of with people you don't know and just really have these great conversations. I think it's a skill that you, you that, that you can't diminish. Not everybody can do that. Well, I, I think I'm actually just sort of riffing the same way that you do when you're doing music, right? Like, I think you're doing the same thing with music. It's just music is maybe perhaps the language you're more comfortable riffing in. I, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, and I think, yeah, maybe it's my education in, like, philosophy where, you know, often it is about, like, I, I, I think when I think about, like, great philosophy, it tends to be a duet between two interlocutors, right? Like, through text mm-hmm. or sometimes in person, right? If you're, you know, if you're reading Plato, like between, you know, imaginary Socrates and imaginary whoever. Um, <laughs> but it, it is that sort of like that jazz, like riffing back and forth. And I think when I, yeah, when I do think about like, when I hear you talking about eco song, it's the way I think about just sustainability, right? It's just finding the people that are cool, not having a preconceived notion about what I want from them. And then like, right, like I provide them with a, a list of the riffs, like the, the idea riffs that I have. And then let them build off of that. I agree. And sorry, I hate it when people do that, when you're doing a, <laughs> sure. actually doing a, but, you know, and, everybody, and like, you know, that's just, well, you just said it like you're saying, but, you know, this is a, but I would say, but there's one element that's a little different to, to use your, your, your metaphor for the music, um, yeah. that there are those musicians that really do love to riff. And they do yes. love to get together with a lot of different musicians and as many as possible and play with them and, and yeah. kind of see what happens or whatever. And then there's those that are comfortable with a certain set of musicians they've worked with 
and they kind of mine that deeply and deeply. And I guess that's my MO. I've been with these same musicians and hypoxic punks, the, the, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Right now, Tim Gustafson and Bob Pock are mainly what's left, and that's because we're old and there's been a lot of attrition, you know, especially yeah. of young people that, that go and get jobs and actually have to leave us, you know, and move elsewhere. Yeah. But for the with the same ones for almost two decades, mm-hmm. and I think there's those musicians that that for whom that rehearsal is this incredible communion between people they know and they mind that, mm-hmm. and those that are the type of jazz musician that are like, I want to see what this new cat brings and see what happens Mm. there. I'm not the new cat person. So literally people will say, Oh, come (laughs) over, we'll jam. And I kind of politely, you know, say, Oh yeah. yeah." And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, Oh gosh, that sounds scary. You know? Um, (laughs) And I think, I think as far as podcasting, it's the same thing. I don't think you find it scary to, you know, I don't know you at all, but yeah. you're a you're a you're a stranger, a friend that I haven't met yet that has this interesting philosophical question in Florida. I'm going to talk with you. Yeah, well, I mean, and I suppose the then right, like there is, I mean, I think there there is that form of podcasting too, right? Where rather than having guests, it's the same sort of panel of folks each time talking about yeah. something different, right? Maybe that's maybe that's a model that might be more sustainable, right? Find a uh, a few other folks who are also interested in public lands and then see what you can mine from that group of people about the range of topics, right? You can, that might be easier than having to book folks. If you can find, I love that. And that's, those are the ones I really love. Like, you know, Doug Benson does constantly bring on new people for, for his podcast, but um, this is a sort of a, um, what do you call it? A, a confession you shouldn't probably make in any context, especially <laughs> an academic one. But uh, my favorite podcast um, in, that I've been listening to a long time is um, the Fantasy Football Podcast on ESPN that Matthew yeah. Barry started. And it's one of the most popular. And, you know, I barely play fantasy football anymore. And you you should right. be embarrassed to ever admit you do it at all, you know. <laughs> Um, but the, the, the single league I have left is a family league and it's a lot of fun. I don't listen to that all the time because I'm trying to mine and figure out exactly which player I want or whatever. I listen to it because, you know, um, uh, field and field Yates and Stefania Bell and Matthew Berry and their producer, the secret squirrel. Notice how I can rattle off these names, have these great personalities. (laughs) They work well together. And about half of it has something to do with fantasy football. Half of it doesn't. I love that format. That's that's, I think that's probably overall, usually my favorite. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think right with the public lands, uh, podcast, right. That could be a format that would work. Right. Uh, I am sure within your circles that you would know folks who can comment on a wide range of issues related to public lands. And then right, you can get, you can not worry about the, uh, the, the, the finding booking guests. You don't have to worry about yeah. like, right doing research about that guest each time. And then instead you can just find the, the topics or the, that, that are, that are currently resonant, uh, Get, right like share those share some pieces with the of those topics with the the panel and then right record from there 
I think that's a great idea. And even you can have a sort of set place where you do it, et cetera. It doesn't require a lot of travel or anything. And I think that's a great idea. Um, the problem I've run into so far, I mean, because that is that is the answer that I think is ultimately the problem I've run into so far is the idiosyncratic nature of my friends. Um, <laughs> I think, for example, it literally uh, the the most natural sort of organic set to do that would be what a bunch of musicians think about public land. <laughs> so maybe right there, I would listen like, to that. I would listen to that so much. That'd be so good. Well, it's going to happen then. It's going to happen. Yeah. And, and the students and others that are subscribed and follow it and, and, you know, the, the, it usually has about any given podcast usually nets about 1200, you know, I don't do anything to promote it or whatever. They yeah. might think what the hell happened to this podcast, but you know, it might be a different 1200 people. It might be more, might be less. And and that gets back to our point. It's not like, you know, the, you have to first do the thing that you love. That brings us to the end of another episode of Just Sustainability. As a quick review, during my conversation with Mark Peddledy, we learned about music as a mode of communication, ecosong.net, and how Mark and I think about and approach podcasting. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, which will be the season three finale, I'll introduce you to Dr. Liz Thompson, who's the interim associate vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the University of Minnesota Morris. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.